0: Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of Economic Rockstar, I speak with Professor Abdullah Al-Bahrani from the Northern Kentucky University. Topics covered in this episode with Dr. Al-Bahrani include the economy of Oman, about the trends in teaching economics and Abdullah's research interests in racial discrimination and how it gave him his PhD dissertation question. Why not check out economicrockstar.com for the show notes to this episode and check out any of the previous episodes you've missed. Subscribe on iTunes and never miss an episode of Economic Rockstar.
1: Well, I'm originally from Oman and I'm uh, passionate about the Omani economy and trying to help Oman develop. So anytime I could provide uh, you know, any economic expertise, I'm always willing to do so. I tell my students on the first day that economics is everywhere. So I try to come in with one thing every day that is not necessarily a typical economics situation, but I tell them how I see the economics in it. You roll up your sleeves and you keep on trying. And, you know, I was lucky to get a job in the mortgage industry with great individuals. And it led me to go back to get a Ph.D. and it actually gave me my dissertation question. So... You know, when they say everything happens for a reason, I mean, this is good evidence of that. Now, we don't know what the counterfactual is. What would my life be without that discrimination?
0: Hi, Frank Come here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Abdullah Al-Baharani join me today. Hi, Abdullah. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me
0: on. Dr. Abdullah Al-Baharani is an assistant professor of economics at Northern Kentucky University, where he serves as the principal's of economics coordinator. Abdullah's research interests are in the fields of industrial organisation and the education of economics. Currently, his primary focus is on innovative approaches to teaching economics. In industrial organisation, his research examines market structure and competition in the banking and real estate industries. Prior to joining academia, Dr. Al-Bahrani worked in the mortgage industry from 2003 to 2006. He has also served as outside economic consult to the Ministry of Education, Sultanate of Oman and New Business Ventures entering Oman. Abdullah received his PhD in economics from the University of Kentucky in 2010, where he received an award for best economics graduate teaching assistant. His master's degree in economic theory was awarded by American University in Washington, D.C., and he earned a Bachelor of Science in business economics from the University of Louisville. Abdullah, I'd love to actually talk about Firstly, how you got involved in economics, because there was a transition there in 2006 where you left the mortgage industry and joined academia. Why was that the case? Was it due to the financial crisis?
1: Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I think I started listening to your podcast. I I think it was around the fifth episode or something around there. So thanks for producing these podcasts. Uh, But as far as my introduction to economics, really the switch happened when I was in college. So when I was at the University of Louisville as a undergrad, I was initially a chemical engineer major, and I was a chemical engineer major for three years. So my third year, I took an econ class and, and then ended up switching to economics, and I always knew I wanted to eventually get a Ph.D. and teach economics, but after my master's and after being in school for, at that time, uh, or higher education for six years, Uh, I decided to take a little break and the industry that was booming at that time was the housing industry. And like most people, I found a a job in the real estate market uh, and mortgage business. And in 2006, it started to slow down and people in the industry started to see the the end, if you may. And I knew I wanted to get into a PhD program and I just earlier that year had applied to several programs that were geographically close by to me and got acceptance at the University of Kentucky and took the summer of 2006 off to watch the World Cup and then started the my PhD program at the University of Kentucky.
0: Oh, this fantastic timing, a true economist or maybe a natural economist there.
1: Or maybe just lucky. That's, <laughs> that's what we'll go with. <laughs> I, I would like to say that uh, my Economics helped me see what was coming. But uh, to be honest, it just moved way too quickly for us to, uh, I mean, we saw it, but it was just uh, much quicker than when we expected would happen. So I just got lucky.
0: You've acted as an economic consultant to the Ministry of Education in Oman. How was that link created? Well,
1: I'm originally from Oman and I'm uh, passionate about the Omani economy and trying to help Oman develop. So anytime I could provide, uh, you know, any economic expertise, I'm always willing to do so. My connection with the Minister of Education is my mother, who is the Director General of the National Center for Career Guidance. She's the connection that I have. And usually I do some reviews of labor market outcomes and studies in that sense.
0: Is this something that has evolved since you got your PhD and your professorship at Northern Kentucky?
1: It's evolved, to be honest with you. I would like it to be a little bit more in-depth now. One of the issues that's happening in Oman and that I'm really interested in is the transition from the government providing all jobs to trying to create a culture of entrepreneurship and to switch people into the private sector and enterprise it's a little bit tougher than we would like uh, for it to happen, or it's not, it's not as smooth as it, we would like to go. And it's really a lot to do with culture and less with incentives. Uh, Oman is a really young economy, uh, really developed after 1970, and to attract people, the government provided a lot of perks for people working in the government. So growing up, myself and my friends, there was a prestige associated with working for the government because of all the perks that you received. So that was developed in the culture that if you want to be a successful individual, you need to work for the government. And now what we're starting to realize is the government can't sustain all of this economic growth. It has to be shared with the private sector and entrepreneurship needs to pick up. However, entrepreneurship is extremely risky and the Omani culture is not used to risk or taking on risk because things, you know, in the past came really. Easy. So there's a lot of difficult decisions ha- having to be made right now in Oman. And, um, there needs to be a lot of change and there's a lot of initiatives for small, and medium enterprises, a lot of new financing available for them and, and venture capital. The problem is the view that is provided is entrepreneurship is for everybody. So instead of selecting or having some people go into entrepreneurship, it's being taught to everybody as if everybody should go into entrepreneurship. So there's going to be issues there and a lot of unintended consequences. But really, from my perspective, if you want to increase the amount of entrepreneurs or small businesses, we need to uh, liberalize the labor markets. Uh, Labor markets, there's a lot of regulations. I'm not sure if you've heard of Omanization, but it's a requirement where the government has imposed a requirement where a fraction of your employees have to be Omanis. And that fraction increases with the years, and it becomes costly to have that regulation or that force on a firm to hire Omanis. The correct question, though, should be why aren't Omanis hired in the first place? And I don't think anybody is really asking that question. It's more a mandate rather than asking why Omanis are not going into businesses or are not being hired. And that's the question I want to ask as an economist.
0: And have you come up with some hypotheses in the meantime to try and test. I know it's, it's the wrong thing is to try and jump to conclusions first, mm-hmm. but possibly there could be some, as you might believe, some variables that might exist out there that you need to actually test and try to remove from these this type of hypothesis or modeling that could go on.
1: Yeah, well, for the people that want more Omanis in the labor market, which I think everybody wants more of the locals operating in businesses. But for those individuals, they, they usually argue that it's a discrimination that Omanis are not being hired because expats are perceived to be more knowledgeable, which, you know, comes from our history before 1970. We didn't have many. Omanis that were educated so we had to rely a lot on expatriate works, uh British and you know Americans and Westerners to come to Oman and develop the economy but we provided a lot of education for Omanis we have very educated Omanis so so people are arguing that there's still some discrimination in the market the other argument is Omanis are just they might be educated but they don't have the experience which might be true and then there's the third argument which I'm not I really don't like is just Omanis are not as a great quality of an employee that things have come to them so easy in the past that productivity is, uh, is lower. And I, I'm not a big fan of that because I, you know, I know a lot, you know, I'm from Oman and I know a lot of Omanis and I don't think that's necessarily the, the, the answer or, or, but it's a hypothesis and it's worth testing to, to measure productivity. The problem with Oman is access to data. Because it's a, such a young economy, getting access to data or data collection is not as advanced as it is in the United States. Uh, you could run a lot of tests over here with the databases that we have, with the census and so on. But in, in Oman, it's really hard to come across data. Now, the National Center for Statistics and Information is doing a great job starting to develop those databases But uh, we're several years behind at this point. But once that data is available, that's something that I'm looking forward to tackling.
0: Maybe there are other types of stereotyping and possible bias in terms of opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you think religion might be a factor in this, even though some businesses may dismiss that? When you start to talk about discrimination,
1: you, you could say, you know, religious. You could we could talk about gender discrimination, but the discrimination that is here is between Omanis versus expatriates and expatriates could also be of the same religion, but they're still being regarded higher uh, or more qualified is the argument that's being made. So religion might be a discriminating factor, but given the people that are being hired in advance of Omanis, some of them are the same religion. So
0: So it might be a good idea to do a test whereby you're going to have two types of people, as you mentioned, the expats and the Omanis. Mm-hmm. And are of the same religion so at least by looking at some factors you can remove the possibility that religion is not a factor that it's to do with perceptions on whether you are Omani or whether you are uh, American or U.S. expat you know just uh, given my
1: background in economics
0: I really think what it comes down
1: to is an Omani employee is more costly to the firm than an, an expat because of the labor market regulations. If you hire an Omani, it's more difficult to fire them, uh, to lay them off. So if it's more difficult to lay them off, it's also more difficult to hire them because you don't want to be stuck with somebody that you can't get rid of when the business cycle changes. And that's something that we need to change. To hire more Omanis, we actually need to reduce the cost of hiring an Omani. Uh, As a firm, I would rather hire an expatriate because if my business slows down, it's easier to get rid of the expatriate. And that's what I refer to as the, you know, liberalizing the labor market. I mean, the private sector is just more sensitive to the business cycle and they need to be able to adjust and, you know, change their production methods when needed. And, you know, sometimes you need to lay off people. It's just part of the process. That's, that's economics 101, right? But if you're not allowed to adjust, then we're going to have more firms that fail. When they cannot change the number of uh, employees that they're hiring uh, or that they have working. So now the question is, I understand the intention of the policy. The policy is just to have more people in the labor market. But what actually is happening is we're reducing the profitability of small and medium enterprises, and therefore they're less likely to occur. Right. Therefore, we have less employees in the market or, or Omanis in the market because we have less firms.
0: Can I ask you um, some statistics regarding the economic indicators of Oman? Just, okay. I, I just have a quite an interest there now since we've started this discussion, like mm-hmm. the, maybe the unemployment rate or maybe amongst younger people, the growth and possibly interest rates.
1: Yeah, that's a difficult question. I mean, we could read World Bank's data and there there is data that is available, but I don't necessarily trust the quality of the unemployment data in in the sense that what's being reported or the unemployment uh, the approach to studying unemployment is a little bit different than it is here in the United States. I think what is being reported is much lower than what actually exists. For instance, well Let's just look at the GDP, Uh the mm-hmm. GDP per capita is 21,000 U.S. dollars, and we're talking about a population of about 3.6 million. But employment numbers, there's 8.2, 7.9. I will tell you with the young generation, the age group of 18 to 25, that number would be much, much higher than the 7.9 that was reported in 2013.
0: It's like talking about Ireland. Um...
1: Yeah, you know, and it's difficult because it's not that anybody's trying to change the numbers. It's just the collection, the data collection process is new. And as you, you know, the systems are new. Uh, so eventually we'll start to get more accurate numbers that, you know, us economists like to report. But You know, even unemployment numbers in the United States are a very, uh, you know, and there's a big margin of error. So we're talking about a country that is, you know, 45 years old, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot has to be introduced. But uh, official numbers from the World Bank for 2013 unemployment is
0: 7.9. Can I ask you if there are any trade agreements with neighboring countries? Because with developing a, a country like Oman, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's going to offer a lot of opportunities for indigenous industries and also from multinational corporations that want to be part of Oman yeah. and their neighboring countries. Do you have those trade agreements?
1: O- Oman has a trade agreement or is actually part of the Gulf Corporation Council. So that's the neighboring uh, Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, United Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain. But it also has trade agreements with you know, the United States. I believe Oman's a great place for foreign companies to to set up. There's a, you know a younger population that is growing, and you know there's a lot of money in the economy as well. So consumer demand is there. You know Oman is a jewel that hasn't been discovered, is the way
0: I put it. I love that. I love yeah. I love it. Again, uh, I don't want to say it. I might actually edit this out as well. But it's like Ireland. We're known as the Emerald Isle. Yeah. <laughs> so we're also a jewel. And uh, the American companies love locating here too.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, Oman's doing a great job with starting to develop a tourism industry. If you look at the other Gulf countries, Oman has a very diver- diverse terrain. So if you like the mountains, we have that. If you like the, uh, you know, the sea, the beach, we have that. And then if you have the desert and then in the south of Oman, you actually get, you know, the monsoon season where it's green as if you're in, you know, Ireland. It's actually that type of weather, which is, you know, you don't get that in the Middle East and in the Gulf. So it's, it's developing a marketing campaign for tourism and ecotourism as well. And I think that will be the second industry after gas
0: eventually. Mm-hmm. That was my next question, actually, were the factor endowments of Oman, man, given that you were part of the GCC, that your endowments would be mainly gas and oil?
1: It's mainly gas and oil, but there's attempts to diversify it. And, you know, uh, like any other economy that is uh, struggling with the price of oil right now, there's a lot of evaluation going on, evaluating what, where should our resources go. So that's probably one good thing that's coming out of the low oil prices is we're to, having to make some difficult decisions. And I like those decisions. They might be difficult, but I think we need to make them.
0: Abdullah, you're starting to pivot yourself in terms of how you approach teaching. Your primary focus is on an innovative approach to teaching economics. And you've written numerous papers and presented at conferences. And I'd love to talk about that now, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, one on. of them is a, a great paper that you wrote with Darshak Patel. Yes. Uh, incorporating Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook in economics classrooms. And it's something yes. that I touched on in previous podcasts, and it seems to be a trend that's uh, growing. But again, you mentioned a couple of things within this paper, and I'd like to ask you on how maybe you could incorporate this into your classroom sure. and maybe uh, some of the concerns that we might have in implementing this new technology.
1: OK, I'd be glad to answer that.
0: When I started lecturing and mobile phones were growing in popularity, we always told the students, turn, you know, turn off your mobile phone, make sure it doesn't work. But now we're saying, look, if we could almost create a, a live classroom where we're in touch with other uh, external professors. We encourage the use possibly of social networking. So yes. is this something that is going to be with us and you recommend we should actually integrate it into our classroom setting or should we leave the phone turned off?
1: Uh, You know, from my perspective is embrace technology in all aspects. You have to learn what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Every instructor has to do that with everything. Even just, you know, chalk and talk, you have to figure out how to balance your class. From my perspective, I if my students want to tweet me a question while I'm teaching, they should feel free to do so. So I embrace it. The only policy that I have in my class with regards to the, the use of phones is do not impose a negative externality. And I have that Conversation on the first day. And for most of my students, that this is their first economics class. So the first lesson that they just learned is the concept of negative externalities. <laughs> and so, you know, we talk about what a negative externality is and how to minimize it. And I tell them that vibrate does not mean that you're not imposing a negative externality because I could still hear a phone vibrate. So silent phones, uh, preferably, you could, you know, tweet, Instagram, text. I really don't care, okay, because if it, if you're internalizing the cost, if it's only a cost that you are incurring, then it's your education. You have the decision to, that's the decision you should make. But once you impose a negative externality, then we have to have a discussion. And just to make it a little bit fun, because this is the first day of class and, you know, students are nervous. Uh, usually on the first day of class, they're trying to figure out who the right professor is. They're trying to figure out how their life is going to be for the next 16 weeks. I also introduce another policy uh, when it comes to cell phones, and that's if your cell phone actually rings and it's a phone call, I get to answer it. I get to talk to the person <laughs> on the other line about whatever I want and uh, for however long I want. And students laugh about this, and they think I'm joking, and then I tell them a story about, you know, previously I was a, at a different institution, and um this actually happened in class, and, you know, I picked up the phone, and it was the weekend before Easter, and uh, this, uh, you know, it was the student's mother, and she was in shock when she heard my voice, she didn't know what was going on, did she dial the wrong number, and I assured her that she had the right number, but her son was currently in class. And I asked her how she was doing. I asked I told her that her her son and I had just got done talking about how excited he is to be coming home for Easter. And the fact that i like that he gets to go home for Easter, but I don't get the chance to go home for Easter. And I was kind of sad about that. And, you know, we talked about it for and she asked me how her son was doing in class. And I said, you know what? I can't really talk about it, but I think he could be doing better. But he's a great student. So the student <laughs> is really embarrassed at this point. And, you know. It kind of – it's it's an uncomfortable situation, but after that, students knew that I was serious. If the phone rings, I will answer it, and I've, I haven't had a phone ring in my class since. Actually, I, I – I, I've had one this past semester. But the funny thing is on the Monday after Easter I walk into class and here comes a student with the Easter basket from his mother. So I just developed a you know a sense of community in the classroom by by that uh, by that experience. So uh the Easter basket sat in my office until uh the, the candy had to be thrown away.
0: Huh. <laughs> 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 I love that. I love that Abdullah. Yeah. But yeah but,
1: but my philosophy is embrace technology, and you know I, i've had I've been given this talk around the country about the use of techno or social media in the classroom, and a lot of the pushback is usually, well, I don't want to see what my students' social media looks like because some of it is not pretty. And my response is usually, yes, some some of it is not pretty because students haven't learned the right way to use social media. So if you're engaging them and they're seeing your social media production, uh, you're producing tweets or statuses, then they see how to do it right and correct. So you help them actually clean their social media footprint when they go out for jobs. I think now people are expecting them to have some social media. So if somebody doesn't have any social media presence I think that reflects more negatively on them than having a social media account that you know might have a couple of posts that are not favorable. But my objective is for my students to look good when they go out in the labor market. And if they're tweeting economic content, I'd like to believe that's usually a good signal.
0: I've had a recent guest, Alice Louise Cassens, in episode 28, and she has used Twitter in her assignments. Do you not only use it in your classroom, but integrate it into your assignments too?
1: Well, My my view on social media, and this is part of the studies that I've done, is forcing students to pick a platform sometimes backfires, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that when you are using social media, you're making it accessible for everybody on the platform that they're already using. So I have a Twitter, I have a Facebook, and I have an Instagram. The Instagram I don't use much, but Twitter and Facebook uh, like pages I use often. And during the semester, I try to keep the content similar on the Twitter and Facebook like page. So usually what I do with my assignments is I'll have live tweeting events, right? Mm -hmm. So tweet your questions or post your questions on the Facebook like page. And the idea is just to have students communicate with me regardless of the platform and, and to have their questions answered. So I don't necessarily give a specific assignment that you have to answer or approach on a specific platform, but I allow them to express their knowledge on any platform that they choose that we're connected on.
0: You mentioned earlier about the chalk and talk approach to education and economics. That's Mm -hmm. kind of fading as such. And you wrote a paper called using ESPN 30 for 30 to teach economics as an alternative pedagogical approach to -hmm. teaching economics. Um, could you explain what ESPN 30 for 30 is and how you could actually use this to teach economics?
1: Okay. ESPN 30 for 30 is an initiative by ESPN to celebrate uh, their 30 years of existence. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to create 30 different documentaries about 30 different topics in the past 30 years by 30 different producers. And, you know, just to highlight what's happened in sports in the past 30 years. And, Although these are sports documentaries, but the reality of it is most of them had a human touch to it. So it goes beyond sports. Sports is really the background of what happened. So I'm a big fan of ESPN 30 for 30, and the idea actually came to me. There, there was a semester when I was at uh, Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania where I had to teach a economics class, economics for non-economists. And the goal was to attract the arts majors and the nursing majors into taking at least one economic class. And I, you know, it was my second year at Bloomsburg and, you know, the dean and the chair walked into my office and said, Hey, you know, you like the teaching aspect and how about, you know, we roll out this class, but we only have two requirements. I was like, sure, what are the requirements? They're like, no math, no graphs. So I had to be really innovative on how do I teach economics without math or graphs, which, you know, in the principles levels, that's what we rely on is the graphs. And I learned a lot teaching that class. So I relied a lot on ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries to get points across. Actually, I started using social media in that class because a student was so interested in actually how economic thinking works, and he asked me if I had a Twitter account, and I said no. And I was like, why would you ask that question? He said, well, your mind just works very differently, and I just want to know what other thoughts you have. So I went out and got a Twitter account, and that's when we started using Twitter, and the engagement was great. But in that class, because I used ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries after the class, uh, I was like, I could actually write a paper on how to use ESPN to teach economic topics because I've seen – the first season I had seen all of it, and Darshak and I are good friends. Darshak went to grad school with me at the University of Kentucky, so we just made it a summer project where we got to spend time together, talk economics, and watch a lot of ESPN, so it was, uh, it was a great time.
0: And you mentioned that you decided to come up with this paper, but given that there's 30 documentaries, I'm sure there's scope to actually write a book on this, yourself and Darshak.
1: Actually, there's there's more than thirty documentaries now because ESPN saw how high the demand was for these documentaries. So, I mean, now they come out I think once a, once a month. There's a new documentary, and this started in two thousand and eleven, I think. So, there is room to write a book about it. Um, have to talk to ESPN, make sure that they're okay with it.
0: You're aware of my recent guest Kim Holder, who featured on the previous episode.
1: Yes, uh, she was fe- great.
0: Yeah, she held a rockonomics competition an mm-hmm. inter-university one. And one of your students actually featured on this. And I'd love to know how you got on because I had to listen to and I watched the videos. And yeah. I actually voted for your video. I well, we appreciate amazing.
1: that, Frank, we appreciate that. Before Rockonomics, what I used to do in my class at the end of the semester, I had a quiz where students would have to write a poem that had to do with economics. And it was kind of my end of semester release, you know, some Tension, break uh, a little bit of the tension up because we're getting close to finals. So, students would write a poem, and that evolved as I was teaching to okay, one of the other things that I want my students to do is to be comfortable talking or public speaking. So, I started to give extra credit for students that came up at the last class to perform their poem or, you know, recite it. And what I started to realize is students started to take liberty of some of them bringing guitars. Some of them wanted to shoot a video. So these are original songs, not remixes, right? So they were eager to show their creativity. And what happened in 2011 is Kim and I actually connected through Twitter. And she told me about this rockonomics assignment that she does. And I said, you know what, this is a great way for me to formalize what I'm already doing. So you know we started share resources, and then the next cl- next semester I roll uh, and I still do currently roll it out as a extra credit assignment. But with you know the way you see it right now on Rockonomics.com, where you take a popular song and remake it into economic content, shoot a video, and then last or two years ago we started the national competition, and it's been great. My students love it, and then next semester actually what we're doing is I'm. Rolling out, uh, um, one, one of the issues that we have is the quality of the videos vary drastically. So I've reached out to our media department at Northern Kentucky University, and we're going to do an interdisciplinary project where my students actually write the economic lyrics, and their students shoot the video and produce the video and the audio. So we're hoping that this makes everybody better. And it also bridges the gap between the sides of campus, the business school and the communication media school.
0: I think that's a fantastic idea. I'm Um, excited about it. Cross collaboration. It's extremely important to look at the benefits of what's in-house and have their students' creativity be encouraged, really.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is, you know, when these students leave our university, they'll be expected to work with diverse people with different backgrounds. So why not start that interaction earlier? And I'm sure, you know, the communication and media uh students will learn a little bit of economics. And I'm sure my students will learn how to produce a video a little bit better than they did without them. So it just benefits everybody, and you know, I'm, I'm excited and hoping that the quality increases. And I also think it will reduce some of the tension on the students because they might know their economics, but they might not know how to shoot a video, and this will allow them to focus on their comparative advantage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was doing a, my research for you, Abdullah, um, yes. I just kind of slightly went off and had a little ramble. Okay. And I came across a, a website, I'm sure you're familiar with it, and I, t- I didn't want to go into it, but I had this extra time. Rate my professor. Yes. There was amazing things being said about you, not one negative thing, and there was a number of, he's hot, this guy is hot, <laughs> you know, take his class, he's hot. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm sure if I asked some of those students who their main influencers were, and they'd actually say you. And I'd like to actually pose that question to you, who would be your main influencers in terms of economics?
1: First of all, I, I would be honored from, I mean, I'm honored by the comments that my students provide me. And, you know, uh, that, that's ultimately what I want to do is make a difference. And that's why I'm in teaching. But as far as my influencers, I mean, I've, I've been lucky to have a lot of people that have molded me or ma- made a path or allowed me to go on the path that I'm on. I mean, my parents are big advocates of education and they instill the value of education, and the, actually the value of curiosity. Um, so if you, if you have a question, you could answer it, just figure out how to answer it. And uh, that was taught to me at a very early age. So always ask questions and try to figure it out. I have one younger brother and the thing that I look up to him is, is his work ethic. Probably the hardest working person, most focused and self disciplined person that I know. So I kind of admire that about him. But as far as economics, the thing that I like or I appreciate is people that push the boundaries that create new paths. Uh, to me, that's what growth is. So the work of uh, Gary Becker and how, you know, he started to look at things that not necessarily were economics at that time, but made them, you know, put the economic spin on them. I love Freakonomics. I love Stephen Levitt's work and Dubner's work because it allowed us to look at the economic questions that are being asked. And some people will argue that some of those are not economics. I believe that they are economic questions, but also taught us or showed us how to communicate economics in a more general way and increase people's willingness to listen to economics. For me, that's, you know, that's what I took out of it is there's a way for you to present economics and allow people to appreciate it. My biggest mentors are Frank Scott, Chris Bollinger, and Gil Hoyt at the University of Kentucky, because they taught me the economics and Gil Hoyt is a great teacher. And she taught me how to be myself in the classroom.
0: It's amazing to have these people around. I am lucky. Yeah, and what you mentioned there about Gary Becker and Steve Levitt and Dubner, they free economics books. You're mm-hmm. effectively doing something quite similar. You know, you're looking at things that are not necessarily economics, but you're getting yourself absorbed in these sports or documentaries and you're picking out economic teams and you're gifting us with that and you're allowing what? students to see what you actually see that they would not have seen at all. So something like what you're doing is you're standing on the shoulders of the guys who brought us free economics too.
1: Yes. Well, yeah, I I, I mean, we're, we're all lucky to have them provide us with that. And it's our obligation now to continue with that. And I tell my students on the first day that economics is everywhere. So I try to come in with one thing every day that is, Not necessarily a typical economics situation, but I tell them how I see the economics in it. And then I ask them to actually do the same thing. And I think you've talked to Kim Holder about this as uh, our econ selfie assignment, where students are supposed to take a picture of economic content or economic concept that happens in their everyday life and tell me in the caption why this is something that reminded them of a concept that we talked about in class. So they become producers of knowledge.
0: I'd love to ask if you have any researcher project that's actually going on at the moment that you'd like to give us some insights into.
1: Yeah, so there's two projects that I'm currently working on that are taking up most of my time as far as research-wise. First one is this Twitter experiment with Darshak Patel and Brandon Sheridan. And because we are big advocates of using social media and we talk about how it creates a sense of community and we believe that it helps the students, we went out this past year and actually tried to test it in our classes. So we had a control and a treatment section, each of us. And then, you know, we try to measure the students' knowledge of economics before using the twos and uh, their knowledge after using a post to' exam. We're actually presenting it on uh, 27th of this month at the Conference on Teaching Economics, CTRI, Conference on Teaching and research and economic education up in Minneapolis. Excellent. So that's, that's one that's keeping me busy right now. And then the other one that I'm in the beginning phases, it has to do with my other interest, which is the mortgage and real estate markets. And I'm examining if there's a racial discrimination in the mortgage market and specifically if, if racial discrimination exists, do online markets help eliminate that discrimination or do they actually make it worse? Uh, cause there's arguments for both sides of it. So that's what I'm keeping busy with right now.
0: I know Roland Fryer has done a lot of work on this racial discrimination too. Actually, uh, our approach is a little bit similar
1: to some of the work that he's doing because in my data set, I cannot observe the individual's race, but what I do observe is their last name and I also observe their zip code. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out and, and the data that I have is a firm that originated mortgage loans in retail markets, traditional markets and in Also, the online markets. So in the traditional markets, the individual will be able to see the race of the applicant, whereas online you will not be able to see and you will have to infer by last name or the zip code, if you're familiar with the zip code. Mm -hmm. So just a standard mortgage pricing model and then including neighborhood or zip code racial composition. And in another specification, the probability of the last name being a black last name, white last name, Hispanic or Asian. And then seeing if that picks up any of the, any pricing differential. It shouldn't, but if it does, which way does it go?
0: And you mentioned about labor markets in Oman. I've mm-hmm. come across recently papers in which there were high unemployment levels in America amongst black and Hispanics rather than whites and Asians. So yes. there is obviously we could almost say some degree of discrimination based on a, a name.
1: Yes. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of studies and in economics There's that chapter on does your name matter? And studies have shown that if you send in a, a resume with a black name, that it's less likely to get phone calls and therefore less likely to get, you know, the probability of employment will diminish. So this is on the same lines of that research.
0: And again, another article I came across, I think it might have been on Bloomberg, was a guy who was being interviewed. His name was Jose, and he Mm -hmm. couldn't get a job, but he dropped the S from his name. Really? And and because his name was Joe, he got the job. I'll yeah. tell you.
1: I mean, I, you know, it's uh it's my experiences, but I was in the labor market after my masters that was 2003 and you know, we were still feeling, you know, the effects of September 11th in the in the labor market and it was very difficult for me to find a job. So
0: I was just uh, going to ask you was this a personal thing? Yeah. No, I mean
1: and, and then you know, I've I've also sold mortgages to uh people in rural United States and I've had uh, conversations where, you know, they told me to go back to India. So, you know, so th- there is some racial discrimination. Now, is it evident in the, in the data? Is it that drastic or could we pick it up statistically? That's the question that I'm asking. But I think from my experience, I'm comfortable saying that there is discrimination. You c- I don't think you could ever get rid of it. Even with education, we're just n- by nature wired to evaluate risk. And some of the risk is uh, the unknown, and um, I think it's, it's going to exist. We would like to educate people and minimize it, but I don't think we could ever get rid of it. It's too yeah. costly to get rid of.
0: Yes. Um, I, I'm just wondering from a psychological point of view or emotionally, how did you deal with such a thing?
1: Um, you know, you just, you roll up your sleeves and you keep on trying. And, you know, I, I was lucky to get a job in the mortgage industry with great individuals and, and it led me to go back to get a PhD, and it actually gave me my dissertation question. So, you know, when they say everything happens for a reason, I mean, this is good evidence of that. Now, we don't know what the counterfactual is. What would my life be without that discrimination after September 11th? But I kind of like where we are right now.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Do you mind if I ask? You said your brother was an extremely hardworking person. Yes. Um, would he have experienced what you had experienced in terms of discrimination? And he might be showing this uh, through the strength of his hard work and dedication and commitments to what he's actually doing at the moment.
1: Well, my my brother's back in Oman. Actually, my entire family's back in Oman. And I I think there's less discrimination towards him there. So I just think he's just wired in that sense. Um, Yeah, okay. very, Very... very very disciplined
0: you had a another paper i'd love to actually touch on briefly if you don't mind mm. the paper competition in online markets when banks compete do consumers really win yeah it seems to suggest that a lot of these price comparison websites are good for the consumer so that we can instantaneously see with lower search costs mm-hmm. what prices are available to us and hence with an open market like that companies may start competing with one another Do you believe otherwise that You've twisted that around and looked at maybe it acting as an anti-competitive environment.
1: Yeah, so there's a different way. First of all, let's visit what the you know, what the claim is. The claim is by allowing you to submit one application on one site and receive multiple offers from banks that do not see each other's offers, you're gonna create lower search costs and therefore the price is going to approach the marginal cost or Bertrand competition. And, you know, you have to have a number of competitors and firms like LendingTree give four to five offers. So the idea is you're better off shopping there because you're going to get a lower rate. And, you know, that's that's a big claim. So I thought, why not go test it? So once again, using data from a firm that operate in both markets, I try to compare the rate that the individual is going to get in the online market versus the rate that they receive in retail markets. And what I find is that there's actually no difference after you control for all risk factors. And, and I try to minimize the – because, you know, search the, – the concept of search costs is you have to assume a homogeneous product. So I try to minimize it and look at a specific mortgage type. And no matter what type of specification I look at, there's no place where – or no specification that gives us a lower price in online markets. So what could explain that? Well, There's several explanations. One explanation is, and actually there's a paper that makes this claim using life insurance data, that online markets actually force retail markets to be lower in price. So because of the introduction of online markets, retail prices have also fallen. So that might be the case. I can't tell that, you know, what would the retail market price be if online markets didn't exist. The other claim is all prices are high. The firm is receiving lower profits per unit. However, because of the gatekeeper, they get a lot more business. So they are allowed to make lower profits per unit, but sell more units. And then the gatekeeper takes in the other or extracts some of the consumer surplus due to reduction in search costs. So in other words, a double marginalization argument. And then finally, the other argument is these online firms that are competing with each other actually know each other really well and know the cost structure and the profit structure that they're facing and in that sense don't necessarily compete by reducing price they compete by you know adjusting quality and you know the the way i like to explain it is think of yourself going to buy a car When you go walk into the car showroom, this car salesman has no idea where you've been or where you're going to go next. So they have to compete with you and make sure that you don't leave. Right? Whereas if we're in a room and the car salesman has an idea that you are going to close or buy a car in that room from somebody in that room, then they start to invest more time getting to know their competitors and what cost structures that they have, and they will not reduce their price below the lowest producer. So it creates an environment where we're not necessarily creating a more competitive environment.
0: Abdullah, I'd yes. love to know, do you have any personal habits that you'd love to share with our listeners? Personal habits. Five, five thirty wake up call in the morning.
1: Um, gym. I have to get into the gym. If I don't get in the gym, then that's actually where I do my organization, my to-do list, things that I need to accomplish. It's where I catch up on your podcasts. Um <laughs> It's uh, where I listen to marketplace uh, radio just to get some highlights of news that I might have missed in the business world and examples that I might talk about in class. So I usually spend about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes at the gym just to work out and catch up on the things that I have to do for the day. It's my quiet
0: time. Fantastic. I'd love to know if you have any recommended books too.
1: I have a lot of books. Um, I'll give you the two books that have influenced me and for different reasons. The Color of Credit is a great book for a graduate student that's looking at econometrics and trying to figure out uh, specifications to understand uh, coefficients and you know what that implies. And if you're interested in mortgage markets and discrimination, that's definitely a highly recommended book. It's a little bit heavier for the general public, but it influenced the way I approach my research. And then from a personal, a fun reading book, a book called Chicago. By Aswani, you know, I, I relate to it because it's about the immigrant issue. It's about a, a set of Egyptian friends that come to the U.S. to study and some of them stay back and how communication might be lost and how people's personalities change throughout time. So if you're interested in culture and immigration and uh, the psychology that's evol- involved with it, that's definitely a great book.
0: We've covered a, very much a diverse area of economics in this conversation i'd love to know if you have any quote or mantra that you find endearing <laughs> okay when i was in college there was a
1: time where i was having a hard time with school and it was during my transition from chemical engineering to to economics and i walked into my advisor's office and she had a poster that had the quote failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently it's something that you know every time things got tough or Things had to change or I had to change my approach. It's one thing that I went back to. And I was like, you know, it's my opportunity to do it differently, but smarter this time.
0: Great. I yeah. love that. I love that quote. Yeah. I love the whole concept of failure and failing better again.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's part of life. And if we embrace it and it, it actually makes, makes things easier for you to take on risk. Uh, one thing that I tell my students is another thing that I try to communicate with them is, Whatever you do, allow your personality to shine or come through. And at the end of the day, most of us are getting the same sort of education. It's your personality and your willingness to shine is what's going to set you apart.
0: And maybe um, it's a lesson for the Oman population to embrace too?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked about the culture aspect in Oman and the fact that working for the government is part of the culture. The other thing also is the willingness to take risk. Um, failing in a business does not need to mean that you failed as an individual. It just says you know this idea did not work now let 's figure out another idea and I think part of the culture is if your business fails actually it reflects on your personality and i 'm not sure those two are necessarily the same things, especially since eighty to eighty five percent of new businesses fail so if that 's the case, then there 's a lot of you know If that reflects on individuals, then there's a lot of people that have failed. And I don't want to put that on their individual characteristics.
0: Exactly. We're going to wrap up now, Abdullah. I'm not sure if you want to address a question like an internet resource or maybe a takeaway. If you have anything there for me, I could ask you. There's not.
1: I mean, I'm on Twitter and that's really where I do most of my communicating with people. Um, It's what I advocate to young economists, uh, people like myself that are just starting their career. You and I connected through Twitter. I think it actually opens up a lot of opportunities and you know, if you're an economic educator, search for the hashtag teach econ and you'll be amazed at how many articles we share with each other. And the great thing with that is. Most of us have the same length of semester and we're covering the same topics at the same time. So if you're running through second week of class, I'm already starting to talk about supply and demand and you're looking for an article, you can't find one. There's a high probability that one of us has tweeted an article about supply and demand at that point in time and put the hashtag teach econ with it. So you'll be able to pick that up and provide it to your students.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely be looking out for that hashtag and I'll be adding to it too.
1: Yeah, Perfect.
0: Abdullah, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast, and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they can find you. Uh, my website is
1: teach-econ.com, and then on Twitter, I'm at, at teach
0: underscore econ. You can find all the links to Abdullah on economicrockstar.com forward slash Abdullah al Abdullah, thank you for being so generous with your time. You are an Economic Rockstar.
1: Thank you for your time, Frank. This is uh, my honor and my privilege. You know, Oman is a jewel that hasn't been discovered.